Well, thank you for inviting me to speak to the society this afternoon. My title is Staffordshire Potters and Welsh Revivalists, the Life and Times of Pastor John Vernon. And I'll start with the at the beginning, or start at the end rather, and then go back to the beginning. Ernest John Vernon, who was known universally by his middle name of John, was found dead in the vestry at the Bethel Temple Hanley on the evening of Wednesday, the 21st of January, 1953. His body lay peacefully in his armchair, the radio was on, and so was the unlit gas fire. He was 49 years old. It's a tragic end to a ministry that began in Hanley in 19. A native of Qumran, he had given the best part of 20 years of his life to the pottery, and he was only 49 when he died. To go back to the beginning, to set things in context, best to go back to the beginning of that chapel in Hope Street. Hope Congregational Church, as it was originally known, was formed in 1810 by a group who left the old Tabernacle Congregational Church in Hanley over a disagreement involving the discipline and reinstatement of a deacon at the Tabernacle who had been found drunk in charge of a horse in the middle of Hanley. I presume the man was a potter, he was certainly potted, but um, I've not been able to confirm what his position was. The result was that something of a falling out and a group left the tabernacle and held meetings for a while in the original Hanley Baptist Church so not the current building or the one before that but I think the one before the one before that um, and they opened a chapel in New Hall Street in 1812 at the time when the estate of Shelton New Hall was being parceled up and sold off and they bought a what was called the Hall Meadow next to the New Hall, which of course became New Hall Pottery. And when, a few years later, the area was being developed for housing, new roads laid out, they named the street running along the side of the chapel Hope Street. So it's named for the chapel, although of course the chapel is no longer called Hope Chapel. Now English nonconformity, of course, has as much variety as Welsh nonconformity, and has shown at times similar tendencies to divide. Although the original Hope Chapel was a very elegant building, a scandal involving the second pastor and a subsequent split. He was a very talented man, apparently, but um, he was accused of having fathered an illegitimate child on Clapham Common with a friend's house that, in spite of its elegant building, the church never became as important as the tabernacle. And the area eventually became a slum, as it was when Arnold Bennett was born, the other end of Hope Street, in 1867. Of course, it's Margaret Drabble her biography of Bennett says a, a, more, a less hopeful street cannot be imagined. <laughs> I think she's been a bit harsh on Hope Street, even today. The church had a succession of congregational pastors from 1814 until 1925, and most of them came from England, where there were... There was one Scotsman, a monkey named Robert Macbeth, from um, Sutherland. There were ups and downs, and like many churches, that were severely affected by the First World War. The membership dropped between 1914 and 1919 from 
181 to 150, quite a significant drop. And the church shared a pastor with the Congregational Church of Silverdale for a while. They were put lived on Cambridge Bank, which suggests that he spent more time at Hanley than at Silverdale. But the pressure of trying to pass the two churches at once and quite a distance between the two meant that in 1925 he left for a church at Ellesmere Port. In 1927, Hope Chapel and another struggling Congregational Church, Park Church, which was still there down near the station, they tried to pull their resources and call a pastor, drunk pastor between the two. Neither had very much money, and in fact when they brought all their money together, they still didn't have enough money. So the result was that both churches being in debt, both had chucked on the buildings, membership, not very, not very wealthy, and therefore all their efforts came to nothing. They swiftly exhausted their resources and, uh, rather laconically, the Minutes of Staffordshire Congregation Union noted in June 1929 that the arrangement between Hope and Park Churches has not been a success and the joint pastor was terminated on March 31st. Hope at this point was overdrawn at the bank to the point the bank refused to allow the overdraft to get any larger and the church was dependent on loans from the Congregation Union that they could not repay. So by... 1930, they were in a hole and no chance, it seemed, of getting out. But at that point, a Welsh revivalist appeared in Hanley. Now, this was a man called Edward Jeffries. Edward Jeffries was born in Mystane, and he was the son of Stephen Jeffries, who was the brother of George Jeffries, who was one of the founders of the Elim Pentecostal Church. Um, in fact, George is generally regarded as the founder of the Elim Pentecostal Church. And because of the involvement, the connection between the Jeffreys family and Pastor Vernon, which was very close to the point that he was uh, married to one of the Jeffrey, to a member of the Jeffreys family, let's again to step back and look at his background and, the, and Welsh Pentecostalism and how it was that this Welsh revivalist, Edward Jeffreys, showed up in Hanley in 19. 30. Wales, of course, has that great history of revivals, and the, the last great revival was generally reckoned to have been 1904-5, associated with Evan Roberts, although, of course, he was really just one of many people. It's just that he was this very good-looking young man, and the newspapers fastened on him as the face of the revival, just because he was such a nice face. And the revival took place within the existing denominations, in spite of of some of the eccentricities, shall we say, of Evan Roberts. But the children of the revival often became dissatisfied with theological modernism, also with the, the way that those who had not participated were suspicious of some of the aspects of the revival. And sometimes the conflict took place within families. A friend of Edward Jeffrey's, a man called D.R. Davis, whose autobiography I have here, um, a very interesting man, D.R. Davis. Um, but D.R. Davis, a friend of Edward Jeffreys, and his older sister, Annie Davis, was a, a singer with Evan Roberts's group. Therefore, when Evan Roberts visited my stay, he stayed at the Davis home, and 
Dion Davis recalls Robert's Walls. He puts it, a man of great power and charm, and he impressed me immensely. This led to him walking the aisle at one of Everton Robert's meetings. And age 15, he concluded his father, who was a fine, upstanding member of the chapel, a deacon even, was nevertheless not converted, with the result that they, when he said so to his father's face at home, his father promptly blew his top, which is quite understandable. <laughs> there was, Davis says, looking back on this as a, an older, wiser man, there was an unholy row. And it was not just a matter of disagreement with parents. There were cases where young men would conclude that their ministers were not converted and then confront the ministers to their face. Ministers who even had some slight reservations about aspects of the services might be labelled as unconverted by unruly teenage church members. The revival often involved a fair amount of, ex- of emotion and an emphasis on experience. Revivals tend towards this heightened emotions. And for some, the end of that period of revival led to a, a longing for something more. And so it's into this environment that Pentecostalism came. Pentecostalism begins in the United States of America. And it came to the UK slightly oddly via Norway. I'm not sure the most things have come to the UK via Norway, uh, from the US via Norway, but Pentecostalism was that. Even with my love of chasing historical connections, it would stretch this talk too far to go into the details. But suffice to say that Pentecostalism starts in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. This idea that you become a Christian and you then have a second blessing, a second experience. The holiness movement said it was this entire consecration. But Pentecostalism looks back, and it's a very American thing to say, well, let's pretend that all the centuries in between now and the first century didn't happen and we want to go back to the first century. Very, very... um, naive view being said after all in America a hundred years is a long time in Europe a hundred miles is a long way back in the early 90s my father was a visiting professor at an American university they asked him to teach an introductory course on British history and they were shocked when he submitted the outline they hadn't remembered how long the history was (laughs) (laughs) And what this means is there's this tendency in the US, and you see it again and again, to try to leapfrog over history and go back and almost reinvent the wheel. Mm. And so you have this movement, there's various types of movements, restorationism, which basically says around about the second, third, maybe fourth century at latest, the church goes completely wrong, and we've just got to reinvent everything right now. In the early 20th century, they said, because we can't go back then, we are not in the first century. We're not in first century Judah or the first century Roman Empire. Um, You can't go that far back, but then try telling that to some people. One of the questions that the Holiness Movement asked was, what is this second blessing? And they asked, what's the sign of the second blessing? The Pentecostal Movement answers it by saying, well, it's speaking in other tongues like they did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This begins with a, a Bible school in Kansas by, run by a man called Charles Fox Parham, who was convinced initially when these people started speaking in 
well, what sounded like babbling, he became convinced that no, this was people speaking other languages. Um, the chief of people thought it was Chinese for some reason. Um, and, I don't know, when I was studying for ministry at a uh, international college, and we had a number of people from Korea, men from Korea, men from Sri Lanka. And yes, if you don't know the languages and you hear people speaking a, a foreign language, you think it's not like babbling. But it doesn't work the other way. Which unfortunately was what Parliament's friends thought. They only came to the conclusion it can't be Chinese when some of them went to China and tried to evangelize the Chinese and the Chinese <laughs> these Westerners and thought, what's got into these Westerners? Have they, have they lost their minds? Um, so the new theory of preparedness was not in fact a human language, but the language of angels. Um, but the Pentecostal movement takes this approach that the day of Pentecost is not so much a once-for-all event, which is uh, the position of most of the rest of the church, but that it was a pattern for revival, that we, should, we wanted another Pentecost. Pentecost was understood as the greatest revival ever, but was thought there could be a greater one yet to come. So Pentecostalism takes root in the United States. And then it, you have Pentecostal meetings happening, and because the United States is the melting pot it is, some of them are, have Norwegian background, and it goes over to Norway. And then at a meeting in Oslo, Norway in 1907, the vicar of Sunderland, Mr. Alexander Body, happens to be in attendance, and he hears these, the, and Body had been involved in the 1945 revival. He'd been in South Wales with Evan Roberts. And he said, I stood with Evan Roberts in Tonipandi, but I've never witnessed such scenes as those in Norway. And so he became a convert to Pentecostal theology. But it wasn't until the end of the year that he finally had this tongue-speaking experience. So in 1908, he started holding an annual convention on which Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, of course, in the calendar, in Sunderland. And these meetings will be held annually until the beginning of the First World War. The basis of the meetings was stated on the admission tickets. I declare that I'm in full sympathy with those who are seeking Pentecost with the sign of tongues. Body didn't travel around. He stayed in his parish in Sunderland, and he invited other people to come to these meetings and even, although he was a, an Anglican, he invited nonconformists into his pulpit. So there's quite a, an inter, interconnection here. And one of the men who came there was uh, George Jeffries. In fact, though, George and his brother Stephen both came. And it was through the Sunderland then connection that the message came down to Wales. Now, to come back to Mr. Vernon, we know very little about his early life. We do know that he was born in 1903, on the 14th of May, in what is now Cumbran, in the Two Locks area, we believe. I've been going to find a record of his birth, but in the 1911 census, he's living with his parents. Ernest James Vernon and Mary James Vernon at 18 Tranquil Place, Cumbran. If you look that up on 
Google Maps today that that area has been redeveloped, but it's just off the by two blocks. At the time, we've been a street of fairly normal, you know, lower middle, upper working class semis. And reflecting rather the work that Ernest James Vernon did, because he put down his name on the census as a collier timberman. That is to say that he, the timberman, it isn't just the man who makes the timbers, he's in charge of setting them up. So this is a man, literally people's lives are in his hands because he's got to make sure that the timber supports for the coal mine are up to, up to standard. The result it was that it's a fairly skilled job and relatively well paid. So on the upper end of working in yeah, practically in the coal mine. We can probably work out that he was a, a nonconformist. We don't know which chapel he went to, I haven't been able to find what it was. It may very well have been the uh, two locks, the Ebenezer Baptist Chapel two lots, which is just up the road from where he his family lived. And of course he was brought up in that Welsh nonconformist culture. D.R. Davis again met a friend of Edward Jeffreys, a man who almost certainly at some point met Pastor Vernon, writes that Bible reading was an institution of Welsh family life. People knew their Bible. It was a layman's book. So on Sundays, they would have visited the Tendo Chapel, and practically every day of the week, of course, there was an activity at the chapel for at least some part of the family. Because his father was known as Ernest, Ernest John Vernon was always known as John, he attended the local schools, and his life was relatively ordinary until he came into the orbit of the Jeffreys family. It is hard to overstate the importance of the Jeffreys brothers in the history of British Pentecostalism. Just to give some figures to put that in perspective, in 1915, George Jeffreys founded the Elim Pentecostal Church. That denomination now has about 650 congregations in the UK alone, and over 4,000 worldwide in some 50 countries. It, it is perhaps the Wales's most uh, prolific export in terms of religion. There were several Jeffreys brothers, I think there were eight children in the family altogether, but three of them are important. Three of them became ministers and evangelists. They were William, who was the, eld the eldest of the three, Stephen and George. William and Stephen worked down the mines. George did not. They were born in Mystage, some eight miles west of Bridge End, and the parents were Thomas Jeffreys, a coal miner, and Kezia, who was the daughter of a Baptist minister. They attended different chapel, it was an independent chapel. I haven't been able to find the birth date of William, who is the lesser known of the three, but Stephen was born in 1876, and George was born in 1889. Thomas Jeffreys, the father now, died in 1895 of Miner's Lung. Stephen and William worked down the pit. In fact, Stephen was only 12 years old when he went down the pit. And 
George, however, was a, a rather frail child, and so his mother managed to get him a job at the local co-op and was most relieved that he wouldn't go down the pit. Perhaps uh, typically of such families, it was the, the frail one who was the longest-lived and lived his brother's buckles away. It often seems to be the way. <laughs> the family later moved further up the valley and transferred to Shiloh Independent Chapel, where the pastor was Glassnat Jones, who was an enthusiastic supporter of the revival and a passionate evangelistic preacher. Stephen married in 1898, and his son Edward had been born the following year. And as the head of the family, he was more engaged in providing for them. St. George was the one who was most involved in the revival work. Glassdown Jones said at the open-air revival services, I always found young Jeffreys at my side. I was privileged to give him his early religious education, and a splendid scholar he was. And like many of the children of the revival, the Jeffreys brothers longed to see such days again. And so it was that they travelled up to Sunderland. And they weren't quite sure of what they saw, actually. There was some hesitation. Is this really revival? However, in 1910, Edward, aged 10, had an experience that he, he interpreted at the time as the definitive baptism of the Holy Spirit, complete with tongue-speaking. And his father and uncle, and both his uncles soon followed. They became associated with a man called William George Hill, who had been the minister of Calvaria Chapel, my stage, Baptist pastor, who had become quite sympathetic to Pentecostal, to the point he left the Baptist church and had begun to hold homes in the, had all meetings in the home of one of his sympathizers, and also in one of the local schools. And on March 26, 1911, George, Stephen, and Edward were baptized by immersion on profession of faith. There had been some thought about George becoming a pastor, but this baptism in a Pentecostal setting meant that he could not be a pastor in one of the existing denominations. It also indicates the beginning of separate Pentecostal churches, and the Maestay group formed itself into one and adopted the name Emmanuel Christ Church, called itself an independent apostolic church. George Jeffries was recognised by this group as having leadership gifts and sent to study at the Bible School in Preston that was run by Thomas Myerscuff, backed by Cecil Cole, who a missionary to China and inherited a, a fortune. He was the squire of Halbury in Bedfordshire and he used his fortune to support missionary groups and also to found this Bible School. He himself to become a Pentecostal through, um, again, AA body's influence. So George Jeffries went off to study in Preston. He didn't stay there very long, but benefited from the study. In 1913, so he got off in November 1912 to Bible school. In 1913, A.A. Body invited him to speak at that Whitson Convention in Sunderland. And he even invited this young man, not even ordained really yet, to occupy his pulpit in his Anglican church there, in Sunderland. Further invitations followed because of this connection with body, and he was called to Northern Ireland as a missionary, really, as an evangelist. By 1915, he had gathered a group of preachers who came to be called the Elin Evangelistic Band, as a reference to the, one of the events of the Exodus, where the children of Israel travelling across the, across the wilderness came across a 
an oasis that they called Elim, and the idea was Elim as a place of refreshing. In 1916, the very first Elim Pentecostal church was formed in Belfast, and in 1918, the existing Elim groups were brought together in the Elim Pentecostal Alliance. In 1921, the first English Elim church was formed, and they snowballed from there. It's interesting because George seems to be quite a reserved man who tended to find relationships difficult because family noted that when family birthdays came along, what they would expect would be to get just a card and maybe a telegram from George. That was it. And as he became more involved, he seemed to become more distant from many members of the family. And relations with his brothers and his the rest of the family seem to have gone up and down over the years. As I say, in spite of his mother's concern over his health, he ended up outliving both Stephen and William by the best part of 20 years. He died in 1962. Stephen had by this point become an evangelist himself, taking missions in various locations in Wales. In 1912, he had a mission in Kumtuk some 15 miles from Swansea, and in February 1913, Stephen, with his son Edward helping him, went to Radnorshire at the invitation of a Quaker magistrate to lead missions that used their base, the beautiful thatched Pales Meeting House at Pennebont near Flanderingdog Wells. Later in 1913, he was asked to lead a mission in Llanethley, and when the mission ended, he stayed and started a mission hall at Island Place, Llanethi, which would become one of the famous Pentecostal spots. It was a rather dingy, repurposed building, it seemed about 200, and the meetings there were in a very free Pentecostal style where people could get up and burst into tongues or start a song. Edward described Stephen as a born evangelist, and although he was very much a Pentecostal Two of the great influences on him were the early 19th century John Elias, the servant of John Elias, and the more or less contemporary R.B. Jones of Paul. By 1919, Stephen had become a missionary evangelist with the Elim churches. William seemed to have come into the work a bit later, and he was not the same, the same sort of travelling evangelist. He doesn't, didn't have the same force of personality, but he was very much content to remain in the background and support his brothers and eventually his nephew in their work. He led churches at Morriston and then one down in Essex. He married a woman called Jane and they had eight children, three sons and five daughters. The third child, an eldest daughter, was named Janet and she was a feature very closely in the life of John Vernon because she became his wife. We don't know when John Vernon came into the orbit of the Jeffreys, but it must have been during the Morriston pastorate of William Jeffreys. And very quickly, he seemed to have come into the family. He must have been viewed as a gifted young man because, no other way, he would have been allowed to marry the eldest daughter of William Jeffreys. But it was through... Edward Jeffreys, that he was drawn into the ministry. Edward Jeffreys was, of course, just a few years older than him and became something of a mentor. He was, uh, 
I say he's the son of Stephen Jeffries, and photographs of him show a slim and thoughtful-looking young man. When his father Stephen began to preach, he often took Edward with him, travelling out, I suppose it was cheaper than childcare. Um, while he was a gifted preacher, Stephen lacked organisational skills. We often find that, that different people have different skill sets. And Edward had to do most of the work. Edward ended up effectively as an unpaid secretary, handling his father's calendar, making sure he didn't double book himself, which is rather easy to do if you're just doing it on your own. And then, of course, the war came. And Edward was called up serving in the Royal Flying Corps. Don't have much information on his service, but very early military aviator, and of course, when the Royal Flying Corps was wrapped up into the RAF, he, he was one of the very early, in fact, one of the, the first RAF men. Following the armistice, he served in a prisoner of war camp in France, so looking after the German prisoners. And after the war, he returned to civilian life, settling first in Llanelli, and then in Merthyr Tidville, as his father had moved on to Merthyr, George Jeffreys, meanwhile, had based himself in Clapham, in Greater London. In 1925, George asked Stephen to go to Southend-on-Sea, to move all the way across from Merthyr to Southend, and Edward and his wife, they were to lead a church plant in Southend, It's the beginning of his full-time ministry. They had some land, but no building, so they set up a great big tent, a big top, basically, and held meetings there until a more permanent chapel was built. And although the work began under the Elim banner, it opened, the chapel opened, under the umbrella of the Assemblies of God, which was an American denomination that Stephen had got involved with. Apparently there had been a falling out between Stephen and George. I suspect that George asked Stephen to go somewhere else, and Stephen said, not ready yet, um, got involved with this new denomination. And Edward followed his father in. Edward Jeffrey remained at the South End Tabernacle until 1928, not just as a pastor, but a church plant in places like Wick Wickford, Chelmsford, and Ashingdon. And once again, he was asked to help his father. Early in 1928, Stephen Jeffrey was asked by a little Pentecostal church in Bristol to run a series of evangelistic meetings. Soon, congregations over 500 were thronging the city's YMCA hall. Edward was asked to not to take over, first of all, but to accompany a friend of his, another pastor from Essex, to go up to Bristol, and this man was to take over the work. Well, this man took one look at the work and said, I can't do this, this is too, way too much for me, and jumped on the next train back to Essex, leaving Edward. And, of course, Stephen was a son, do you mind taking over the work for me, just as a, a temporary measure? It's supposed to be a temporary measure. Within but just a few weeks, but weeks became months, and by June, Edward Jeffrey was speaking to a congregation of over 4,000 in what was then the Colston Hall, and then the city's largest auditorium. And it was there that he surprised everybody. In July, at one of the meetings, he announced he was starting his own new Pentecostal group, the Bethel Evangelistic Association. Our aim, he said, is to win souls to Christ, to preach the full gospel, which meant Pentecostal theology, to stand for the Bible as the inspired word of God, to open up Bethels everywhere, and to train young men for the ministry. A new church, the Bethel Temple, was formed 
the articles of faith were, firstly, the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, the fall of man, total depravity. Thirdly, the divinely inspired word of God and its infallibility. Fourthly, the virgin birth of Jesus by the Virgin Mary. Fifthly, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Sixthly, the atoning sacrifice as the only means whereby man may have the guilt of sin removed. <coughs> Seventhly, divine healing for the body. Eighth, the baptism of the Holy Ghost of the spiritual heritage for every believer. And ninth, the person, literal return of Jesus, the personal literal return of Jesus Christ for his own. At the time, in 1930, then the Bethel movement was emphatically Pentecostal. It's not to say that way, however. Although even by the 1950s, Pentecostal elements remained among the older members of the Hanley Bethel. And ministers in the Bethel denomination all wore clerical collars. So very much that uh, non-conformist minister look. The church soon bought a recently closed Methodist chapel in Milk Street in the Broadmead district. Uh, built in 1853, the chapel seated about 500 and became the national headquarters of the movement. There were regular services, children's Sunday school, Bible studies, men's meetings, women's meetings, and two children's groups, which would eventually become national. The Sunbeams for younger children and the Crusaders for older children. Edward Jeffreys moved out now from Bristol in response to invitations to various places. And they always on very much his campaigns looked the same. There was a massive angelism and then the forming of a local church or local churches. But what was Edward Jeffreys like? All testaments of personality agree he was an honest, charming man, warm-hearted and humble. And his preaching was very plain without rhetorical tricks or flourishes. He spoke with much disapproval about what he called Macphersonism. This was the high, theat high theatrical, very much Hollywood style of Amy Temple Macpherson, American Pentecostal evangelist based in Los Angeles, who took a lot of her cues from what's happening just up the road. One British commentator remarked, I've seen in my time a number of religious revivals. The least attractive was run by the hot gospeler and met Amy Semple Macpherson in Los Angeles. Her ambition was, apparently, to turn Christ into a vaudeville artist, and she succeeded extremely well. <laughs> Her services included actors, plenty of out-of-work actors in Los Angeles, even then, actors, stage sets, props, even on one occasion she rode a motorcycle onto the platform while dressed as a traffic cop. <laughs> It was not so with Edward Jeffreys. He sought to preach a simple, unadorned message addressed to the common man. This, after all, is the son of a mine, and he himself had, there he was, a working man. This was working men speaking to working men. Edward Jeffreys finally came to Hanley in late September of 1930, holding his first meetings in the Victoria Hall beginning on the 29th of September. Thousands queued to get in. On the 20th of October, meetings moved to the King's Hall, and on the 10th of November, they moved again to Burslem Town Hall, as he described it. In other words, the Queen's Theatre. 
There were some differences between the two, between the Bethel movement and the Primitive Methodists, but in many ways it harks back to the early days of the Primitive Methodists, with parades through the streets, banners flying, voices raised in song. We are marching in the ranks of Bethel. Keep the Bethel banner waving high. Tell the old, old story of the one who came to die. That we all might have salvation and the power to conquer every foe. Keep the Bethel banner waving wheresoever we may go. Jeffreys, like most Pentecostal evangelists, combined preaching and faith healing. And this caused a crisis when Dr. W. Mitchell Smith, the council medical officer, heard that splints and medical device had been taken off some young patients from the North Staffs Hospital who had attended meetings, imperiling, of course, their recovery. The council forthwith banned Jeffreys from using their halls. Jeffreys' response was incredibly sensible. He had a meeting with the council, they talked about their concerns, and he promised that no medical devices would be removed from anybody, and that anyone who was supposed to have been healed would be checked by a doctor to make sure that they were indeed all right. And so the civic halls were open to him once again. The events of, the 19, of 1930, 1931 in Hanley and the Potteries have been called the Potteries Revival, Edward Jeffries regarded them. He didn't see them as the result of careful preparations and the right kind of preaching, but the work of God. Many years later, long after he left Pentecostal behind him, Richard Keyes, one of the, the convicts of those days who had become by this point a minister, went to see him at All Saints Hyam Park, London, where Edward Jeffrey was now the vicar. And showing the visitor around his little, little church there in London, Edward Jeffreys said, isn't it lovely? I'm so happy here. The young man could not help but contrast this to the great tent meetings of Bootle in the 1930s and said so over a cup of tea. What happened at Bootle was little to do with me. It was the work of God, and to him belongs the glory, Jeffreys replied. Looking back, he wrote, I have met, heard, and accompanied many well-known healing evangelists from both sides of the Atlantic, but none impressed me as did Edward Jeffreys. He was quiet, compassionate, undemonstrative, so unlike his uncle George, who founded the healing movement. There was not the disturbing dichotomy between his promise and what he performed you find in so many healing missions. I feel sick at heart when I watch some modern-day television healers exercising their self-proclaimed gifts with all the trappings of a commercial circus. So it was certainly influenced very much by Edward Jeffries and his rejection of McPhersonism there. And as with his previous missions, Edward Jeffries sought to gather converts from the Potteries meetings into churches. Five Bethel temples were established in the Potteries, and one mission taken over. Three temples were completely new. The other two were the struggling congregational churches at Hope Street and at Park. The Congregational Union agreed to this with some reluctance, as the wish of the majority of the congregation meant that the Union could really do nothing other than accept. It was a new era at Hope Street. Edward Jeffries provided all the things the church needed. People, members, a pastor, and of course, funds. The original pastor was a man from South Wales called W.J. Jones, who had been in charge at the Milk Street Bethel down in Bristol. And he was, to some extent, Edward Jeffreys' right-hand man. 
fiery Welsh ringer revivalist Mel. He moved on to Preston in 1932 and was succeeded by Alfred Anderson Brown, who was a convert from Essex, from South End, who remained until 1934. The Bethel movement had its headquarters in Bristol, but the rapid growth put a lot of strain on the movement's organisation. In 1932, there was something of a crisis. They reorganised things, and 12 of the 60 churches left the movement, largely due to concerns about financial accountability. But also there were doctrinal changes coming in. Bethel had been decidedly Pentecostal. But Edward Jeffreys had begun to shift his views, particularly on that cardinal Pentecostal doctrine, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bethel Articles of Faith were rewritten. So a new Article 7 affirmed the bodily resurrection of Christ, and Article 8, replacing the old Article 7, read the personality of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. Being a spirit, he can give new life and indwell our personalities from within. We dogmatically affirm that when a man or woman is born again, such a miracle is a direct work of the Holy Spirit. All believers have been baptized into one body by the Spirit. We also teach there is a blessing subsequent to salvation. The only scriptural term for this is the fullness of the Spirit. To be born again and filled with the Spirit are quite different experiences. There is no scriptural teaching that tongues or any other physical manifestations must accompany this as a sign. And the old Article 7, now Article 9, read, Divine healing for the body. Subject always to the sovereign will of God, by natural means and by supernatural means, miraculously. It's become a bit more balanced after that, falling out with the council in Stoke. The other major doctrinal issue was British Israelism. British Israelism always strikes me as more little bonkers. I was a student, I went for a Bible study at the back of the National Gallery in London, and the church that held the meeting used another church's building. The other church was British Israel. And all these things to do with, we are the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. And basically this idea that British people are the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. It was surprisingly influential in the 1920s and 30s, very largely because it gave a sort of theological rationale for the British Empire. So if we are Israelites, then we can go out and colonise the world and the world is then coming under the rule of Israel. Um, it tended, in fact, to become a sort of narrow ethnic nationalism. Um, George Jeffries became very enamoured of it at one point, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. Edward Jeffries just, at this point, didn't really agree with it. And this is one of the things that led to Park Church leaving the Bethel movement and becoming congregational again. The pastor of Park, George Hibbert, was an enthusiastic British Israel supporter. And I remember shocking the current pastor at Park by telling him one of his predecessors went off to become a travelling evangelist for the um, British Israel World Federation. There was a split in the Hanley Bethel at the time, and a small group went off and started meeting in an upper room somewhere as the British Israel Fellowship. But it's during this turmoil that Pastor Ernest John Vernon arrived in Hanley. He was now 30 years old, and his first Bethel pastor had been at Nelson in Lancashire. This meeting, the meetings there were held at the Imperial Ballroom, 
1933, the Assembly acquired a disused Methodist chapel, which were not hard to come by at the time, rather like now. Um, and the usual Bethel activities were held there. The church eventually became Assemblies of God and continued until its closure in 2008. Hanley had become one of the important Assemblies in the denomination. This is why Pastor Brown was sent there in 1932. And because of the work on, on Merseyside at Bootle, he was then asked to, to go and take over that assembly, which would become itself very, very important. Still there, actually, still exists. It's a great Merseyside mission in 1934. And so they needed somebody of similar importance and stature to take over the work in Hamlet. And so Edward Jeffreys turned to his cousin's husband, Pastor John Vernon of Nelson. Pastor Brown would go off to Bootle and remain there until 1949 when he decided to follow Edward Jeffreys' example and become an Anglican vicar. Arriving in Hanley, Vernon was building on the work of two previous pastors. And this reflects the fact that by 1934, the society had become a denomination. It was no longer this rapidly expanding church planting ministry, but a denomination of churches, some of which were quite young, others had long histories. And so Werner remained at the church until 1953. He took over a thriving church, a chapel seated 500, often full to bursting, with children sitting on the pulpit steps and on the gallery stairs, which, of course, health and safety today would not approve of. In addition to the weekly routine, there were special services at Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. There was a thriving children's Sunday school and sunbeams and crusaders groups that met during the week. I have here. This is the, the, the Sunday school at one point. And we have here, this is Edward Jeffreys ministering in the Victoria Hall. And I've got the various bits and pieces over here to have a look at um, after I'm finished. Um, the Harvest Festival will see a great pile of produce in front of the high pulpit produce that would be distributed to the poor after. We, we still do something like that. We now send it all to the local food bank. The choir sat in the rear gallery and a great pipe organ accompanied the singing. The services were very much in the traditional non-conformist style. Orderly and reverent. There were sermons, testimonies and of course both hymns and modern choruses were sung. The Bethel Crusaders had a, a strong group there. Pastor Brown went on to take over the national leadership of the group in 1932, so it had been almost a national headquarters of the youth movement. As well as helping with open-air evangelism, attending the typical children's club evening sessions with a brief sermonette, and of course table tennis, all those table tennis in youth groups. The Crusaders had their meetings, sometimes by train on one occasion at Special train was hired by the Liverpool and Merseyside Bethel to go to Hanley and do massive evangelism and mass meetings in Hanley. And the Crusaders were supposed also for the young men to provide training for the, those who would become leaders in the church. There were men's meetings and ladies' meetings. And 1935 saw the invasion of Hanley by the Bethel Crusaders from Merseyside. In Easter 1936, 
the Hanley Bethel hosted the National Convention, which was effectively the denominational annual meetings. It was an event where leaders gathered to hear Edward Jeffrey speak about the work and about his vision for the year to come, and also an opportunity for evangelistic outreach and for meeting up with people. In connection with this, Pastor Vernon was father-in-law, William Jeffrey, for a 10-day evangelistic campaign in March 1936. And I'll just read a report of it here from the, from the Bethel Messenger, which was the denominational magazine. It was with great joy, Pastor Vernon writes, that we welcomed Pastor William Jeffreys into our midst on March the 21st for a very successful campaign continued until the 31st of the month. These were days of wonderful blessing for experience once again the Spirit of God convicting men and women of sin and bringing them to a knowledge of the Saviour. We witnessed 20 souls take Jesus, their personal Saviour, and many in these gatherings testify to divine healing. The saints speak freely to one to another of the inspiring, instructing, and most helpful messages given by Pastor William Jeffreys. We were truly satisfied that the cry of each and every one at the close of the campaign was, Hasten your return. We shall be glad to welcome you again. Clearly got on quite well with his father-in-law, which is always a good thing. <laughs> Edward Jeffreys then returned to the Potteries for a mission on the 12th uh, to 14th of December 1937. And Pastor Jeffreys reports. We were favoured with a special three days visit by the founder, Pastor Edward Jeffrey, to a series of services. A very devotional service was held on Sunday morning. The founder gave a homely talk on prayer, and many said that we didn't want him to finish after we had had a time of worship around the Lord's table. On Sunday evening, fully 700 people gathered. This is a building that seats 500. And in spite of the cold and snow outside, the meeting inside was by no means cold. And you've got a 200 people <laughs> over capacity. <laughs> As the congregation sang, all oh, the love that sought me, all oh, the blood that bought me, the warmth of love flowed from the hearts of people who could not help but think upon the time when the Lord sought and found them during the wonderful potteries of the revival. During the meeting, the crusader choir sang, the Lord is on his throne. Afterward, the founder preached the gospel in the old time power, taking his text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He goes on to say, everyone went away rejoicing. He also notes that prior to this, Mr. Henry Bettany and Mr. Fred Goldstraw, on behalf of the Crusaders, presented to the pastor a Bible. It's a symbol of his work in our church, not only as pastor, but as a brother and friend. And again, recording some of the things that happened even outside of the special missions. Pastor Vernon writes in April of 1937, We greatly rejoice the wonderful way God is working in the saving of souls. The evening service of Sunday, March 7th, was charged with the power of the Holy Spirit as the pastor sounded forth the message of the lack of consecration to God as a result of 
powerless Christians. We aware of the need of a greater endowment of the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the reverend atmosphere prevailed, seven precious souls were saved. And while the church owes much of its success to the able and royal pastorate of Pastor J. Vernon and his wife. And so everything seemed to be going well through 1938 until suddenly the Bethel movement effectively ceased to exist. Edward Jeffreys was first and foremost an evangelist. While some Christian leaders have successfully combined the gift of evangelism and administration, they've started being very much the exception. John Wesley and William Booth are the only ones I can really think of. Although he did not have the same autocratic and sometimes abrasive personality as his uncle George, Edward Jeffreys also found himself in a position of having to play the autocrat over his nomination largely of his founding. Unlike Uncle George, however, he had never even really begun to form a, a widely leadership structure. There was no governing assembly, no council, just the leader. The 1935 Liverpool campaign, you can see looking back, was the climax of the movement, although campaigns continue. The final campaign was held in Leicester in February 1938. The annual convention was held in Highfield's Methodist Church that Easter, but it was the last. Leicester did not start a new church, and contributions had fallen off so that the denomination was unable to meet its debts. Edward Jeffreys sold his house and used the proceeds to pay off the debt and then resigned from his position. He was succeeded by the pastor of, uh, of Milk Street, pastor Ernest Buckhurst Pinch. But Pinch seems to have, lacked very, to have lacked any interest in keeping things going. The magazine, the Bethel Messenger, ceased to be published. The churches went their separate ways, becoming functionally independent. It was probably because of his family connections with Vernon, that Edward Jeffreys paid one last visit to Hanley in January 1939. He'd become an itinerant evangelist again. It must have cheered the Hanley folk to see him. It was his last visit. And then, of course, in September, the Second World War broke out. Some of the Bethel pastors, including Archie Mead, who was pastor at the Bethel at Congleton, was called up, were called up. As were many, many of the young men. One of them... I know it was a, a stoker on HMS Belfast. I've stood exactly where he did in the engine room of that great cruiser. And so, just as the people being called, mainly called up, weakened churches in 1914, 18, so it affected churches in 1939 to 45. Pastor Vernon had to keep the church going. And just as there hadn't really been much of a structure nationally, there wasn't much of a structure locally. In the Africa of War, we know that the Verners lived at, the, at 141 Milton Road, Sneed Green, which is just up the road from the current mountains, which is nice. That's uh, ordinary semi-detached house. By 1944, he'd moved to Glenroy, 309 High Lane, Burles, slightly larger, in a more upmarket neighbourhood, which suggests that at this time things seemed to be going quite well. But as the war drew towards its end, the Congregational Union dropped a bombshell. They wanted to sell chapel. They were the trustees. And they wanted to sell the building. The church was faced with stark choice, either become homeless or raise the money. And most of them were working class people. They didn't have very much money. They stepped up, however, and 
even though they have to go into debt, they are able to buy the building and the church still owns its own building today. Many of the young men who have gone away never returned. Some have been killed, others moved away, others simply departed from the faith of their early years. A few did come back, among them Fred Goldstraw and Joe Thorley. He was a man who was a stoker on Belfast. Both men did their best to help Pastor Vernon, but his troubles were very deep. They've become, they've been a split in the family. In 1940, George Jeffries left Elam in a very acrimonious fashion. He had become incredibly passionate about British Israelism. We have to have this in the basis of our denomination, he said. And a great chunk of other people said, no, we don't, George. No, we do not. And this resistance led to him talking about reforming the denomination. In other words, getting the people he didn't want out of positions of power. Well, it went the other way. They got him out of his position of power. They offered him, they said, look, George, you can't be the autocrat of the denomination anymore, but you can be the principal of the Bible college. He went off and then founded his own denomination, a new denomination called the Bible Pattern Church, and he invited William... Stephen and Edward to join him, which they did. Stephen died in December 1943 and William in 1945. And with their deaths, Edward drifted away from his uncle George. He resigned his past at the end of the war and moved to Bournemouth. And there he ran into old D.R. Davis, who was now Anglican vicar down there. He's a very curious man in some ways, Davis. Davis had been by terms a Unitarian, Congregational Minister, a Communist, and a Journalist. <laughs> Before a dramatic conversion experience, he'd become completely disillusioned with Communism by the Spanish Civil War. He had, uh, he'd gone out as a journalist, actually, and seen the aftermath of the atrocities committed by both sides. And reached a point where he almost killed himself weighed into the sea to drown himself and suddenly came to his senses and went back, went back into the ministry and eventually became Anglican. And he suggested to Edward that the C of E would give him security, it would give him somewhere to minister, and it would give him what he really needed, which was support. A structure that he wasn't being forced to run nationally. And so he became an Anglican vicar. Edward in 1948, entered St. Aidan's College, Birkenhead, and so George, and so Edward had gone his own way, and John Vernon was left in Hamley. The church did not recover rapidly. The death on the building forced them to sell the Sunday School building, initially to a local garage, and the garage then sold it to the New Hall Pottery. Personal, tra- personal tragedy struck the family there, only child, a daughter, died young and was quite contrary to regulation, but very understandably buried next to the chapel. The last laid to rest there. The stress affected his relationships, his marriage fell apart, and the house in High Lane was sold. His books moved in the vestry, and he lived with Mr. Millwood, the chapel caretaker, but often spent days at a time in the church, making light meals to himself on the gas fire. On the morning of Tuesday, the 20th of January 1953, Pastor Vernon, as normal, had his breakfast at the Millwoods and then set out for the chapel, letting himself in with his key. He went into the vestry and locked the door behind him. 
Shortly afterwards, Mrs. Millwood went to the church to bring her message, tapping on the vestry window. He called back, answered normally, and she went home. That night he didn't return, but they thought nothing of it. It was quite common for him to stay overnight and to sleep in the vestry. They thought they'd see him at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. In reality, he was already dead. We cannot know with certainty past the Vernon's thoughts. He looked around the familiar vestry on that Tuesday evening. His books were there, family pictures, his desk, his armchair, so many memories. He had gone on so long. So many of the old helpers had died or gone away. The church was struggling financially, and his anxieties meant that he thought it was struggling more than it was. His marriage had broken down, the days of crowded congregations had gone, and a deep melancholy had settled on his soul. In those days, of course, men were expected to hide their feelings and not talk about them. And with no wide denomination, he had nobody else to turn to, no one to share with. All men were breaking the point of Pastor Vernon and reached his. So that evening, he turned on the radio, turned on the gas fire but did not light it, and settled down for the last time in his comfortable armchair. He drifted off to sleep, and sleep became death so passed Pastor John Vernon of the Bethel Temple Hamlet. And I firmly believe that he awoke in the arms of his loving Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the one who said, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If others looked on and judged Pastor Vernon in their hearts, I am certain that the Lord Jesus Christ did not, but received his faithful, struggling, tired son. Mrs. Millwood went to the chapel on, on Wednesday morning. She noted the vestry light was on and called for Pastor Vernon, but he did not reply. She thought nothing of it. He stripped off to sleep again. It was only when there was still no word from him at six, so they were getting ready for the prayer meeting, that she became worried. She called the police. They came, and they broke down the door. They found Pastor Vernon lying there in his armchair, looking very peaceful, more than he had in years, and quite dead. There is a stigma about mental illness and suicide, even today, even more so in the 1950s. But it's important to remind us, to remind everybody that we don't have to suffer alone to talk to other people. The Bethel is still there, on the same site, although in a new building. And those struggling as Pastor Vernon did are very welcome. Someone once said to one of our members, you're the old people's church. I prefer to say that we seek to be the broken people's church, to be there for those who need somebody and have nobody else. Because depression is an illness, it's not a sin. To be tried and troubled is not something that to be treated as a, a stigma. But those who need help should seek it in the church and Others, indeed, should be there for them in their time of trial. Make something of a, a down point to end on. It's very important to emphasise the importance of care for those who feel they have nobody else to go to. Well, thank you for having me um, this afternoon. And, uh, thank you.